Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. February is Black History Month. This is traditionally a time to reflect on key moments in the ongoing struggle for racial equity. But given the events of the past year, such as the police killing of George Floyd, there is renewed focus on the systemic racism that persists in American society. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Professor of African American and African Studies Keith Mays joins us to discuss Black History Month in a contemporary context. Professor Mays, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's good to be back. In the past, Black History Month often meant learning about historical figures like scientist George Washington Carver and civil rights figures like Rosa Parks. This year, there seems to be more emphasis on questioning our collective understanding of American history and reflecting on the racial inequalities that persist today. In your career teaching African-American history, have you seen a change in how this month is celebrated? I haven't really seen a change in the month. That's a really good question, Jim. And uh, to give you a kind of a point of... uh, kind of transition from one one side of teaching this material to the other. So I've been around teaching around 18 years. I would say that in the first nine, it was almost as if I was teaching courses and I teach courses in African-American history, the civil rights movement, uh, Black Americans and social policy uh, movements in the African diaspora. I teach a, a number of different courses on uh, race, uh, social justice, and inequality. And I would say that for the first nine years, it was almost as if I was having a dialogue with my students only. And then something happened, I would say, around 2012 and 2013. And that something was the murder of Trayvon Martin. And once Trayvon Martin was murdered in Florida, of course, that began uh, Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter movement started right after his death. And it wasn't until that moment where the issue around police violence was raised. Every year from 2012, 2013, all the way up to the present with George Floyd in 2020, uh, that the community, the state, the nation seemingly became engaged with these issues. And so I felt no longer that I was just teaching to 30 or 40 some odd students every semester and that we were the only ones who cared about it, it seems as though the world started to care. So issues affecting African-Americans and other people of color, and instead of focusing on you know, Black history, Black historical figures, like you said, George Washington Carver or Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks during Black History Month, now we started to focus on broader issues uh, associated with inequality, uh, oppression, white supremacy, injustice, and those broader themes that run directly through African-American history from 1619 to the present. But I would say that, yes, there is now more conversation about those broad themes, but we still, during Black History Month, are getting the kind of the additive stories of the contributions of Black Americans who many people may not know of. And so that's the George Washington Carvers, that's the Rosa Parks, that's the King. So we still have two different versions of Black History Month. And I would say that the first version still dominates the the, the sort of the focus on uh, discrete historical figures 
and not these broader issues. But I think maybe 2020 has changed that. In a year that saw local, national, and international protests following the horrific killing of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer, which figures in black history are most on your mind? Ooh, I, I just uh, gave a talk on Frederick Douglass a few weeks ago. And Frederick Douglass is foremost on my mind only because uh, not only did he speak a certain kind of truth to power as it related to slavery and abolition in 1840s, 50s, and 60s, and even all the way through until his death in uh, mid-1890s, but he sort of was the kind of figure who was able to connect the dots when it came to enslavement, emancipation, freedom, equality. So he didn't just talk about what it meant for the country to live up to its founding ideals, those ideals that we find in the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. Constitution that are so very important today because of all the things that are going on in the larger political world. But Frederick Douglass was somebody who reminded the country that America has not made good on its promise until Black Americans achieve a certain kind of equality. So freedom on the one hand, that meant emancipation, that meant liberation, but equality, on the other hand, that meant making sure that African-Americans uh, have the opportunity to advance in society. So I think Frederick Douglass is foremost on my mind because he spoke with a certain kind of power, a lot of honesty, and uh, he didn't mince words. So he doesn't really sit alongside people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King uh, in terms of his fiery rhetoric. P people forget how fiery he was as an orator. But he's not only somebody who you should listen to, you actually should read Frederick Douglass. And reading him was something that I found myself doing because a lot of people were requesting um, to know about Frederick Douglass in these times. I don't know, I don't know why, but uh, he is seemingly coming up more and more uh, within the last year. As protesters took to the streets this spring and summer, some demonstrations turned violent and destructive, like the burning of large stretches along Lake Street in Minneapolis and the Midway in St. Paul. Both sides of the political spectrum used the words of Dr. Martin Luther King to either justify the anger that led to the rioting and civil unrest or to condemn those same actions. Those typically aligned with the left quoted Dr. King as saying, quote, a riot is the language of the unheard, close quote. While those align more to the right pointed to his stance on nonviolence, is one side perhaps misunderstanding Dr. King's meaning? What can you tell us about how he felt about protesting and riots? Were his thoughts on this issue perhaps more complex than how either side is using some of his quotes? I think uh, to some degree, I think that when he used those words that riots are, are the language of, of the unheard, of course, the backdrop is all of the urban riots, or we call them rebellions, that were taking place in the country. We're talking about Newark in 67, Detroit, Watts in 65, even Minneapolis in 67 went up in flames. And I think that he's saying that if you listen to who you so-called rioters, but in many ways, these are just ordinary people in the cities. Often these so-called riots or the rebellions, as the community called them, were precipitated by police violence against ordinary citizens in the neighborhoods. So we, we come back to the same theme about 
police officers and their interactions with, with black residents, that it always serves as the spark. So we forget that confrontation or that altercation between one or two officers and a black resident. And we focus on the burning, the looting and everything that comes after the first incident. And so we have a tendency to demonize uh, those who are part of rebellious acts, not understanding that they are objecting to the first sin as it was, the one between police officers and, and the residents, but they're also responding to uh, issues around uh, poor housing, a lack of job opportunities, poor schooling, white racism, and just the way in which Blacks are circumscribed within, in the, in the 1960s, certainly in the Jim Crow context, segregation, being segregated in so many different ways. And so when we fast forward and see the same thing, and King's words are so apropos, we have a tendency to lose the original context of King's words. That's the only way in which ordinary citizens who may not have a whole lot of rights can express themselves. And we need to know what the rebellious acts are saying right, and not demonize them. Now, in contrast, Jim, what I think is so important about your question, there's a January 6, 2021 context to it now. And so we had a tendency to overfocus on so-called Black rebels, Black so-called rioters in the streets. Now, if you put that up against what happened on January 6 with those white folks at the Capitol, they don't even compare, right? So I think that in some ways, the most violent people oftentimes in the streets demonstrating and using force are actually white people. We just have a tendency to forget that. We were reminded of that on January 6th. This past summer, we lost Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. Tell us about John Lewis's legacy, his many contributions to the civil rights movement, the issues he focused on in Congress, and, and what do you think ultimately will be remembered about John Lewis in history. Yeah, John Lewis is a historical figure of great dimensions, uh, a theological student uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, somebody who took uh, the word of God seriously, wanted to study deeply, wanted to be a, a minister in many ways uh, when he went to theological school in Tennessee. But then he you know, he gets a call, a call to serve God, but he also gets a call to serve the community and his people. And he, he decides that he's going to participate in the sit-in movement in Nashville. And he gets his start as an activist. And from that point on, John Lewis becomes one of the most important figures in the 1960s and 70s civil rights movement. And he goes on to serve uh, in SNCC, he actually is chairman for a while uh, in that organization. And he does something that uh, Byron Rustin, another great black activist, says. How do we actually transform uh, activism into electoral politics? You know, from protest to politics was Byron Rustin's famous essay in 68. And so John Lewis actually embodied that because he was someone who decided to run for public office uh, uh, soon after he uh, had left the movement. And I think that his legacy is someone who is actually in the mold, in the tradition of Martin Luther King. Uh, and I think if King had not been assassinated, he had you know, remained alive. I think he probably may have run for office. But I think that 
the what we call I call it the kind of mainstream black protest tradition all the folks who sit on the Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, those are the augmenters of democracy. Uh, they understand democracy to be narrow, only pertaining to a certain group of people. And they are saying that no, the founding ideals apply to oppressed peoples like black folks. And we, we sit in that tradition and we want to um, expand the boundaries of democracy. That's John Lewis's legacy. And he goes on to do that. Jim in subsequent decades in the 80s and the 90s, serving in Congress for um, over 30 years, the better part of for 40 years. Uh, and so it's only fitting that the new bill that's pending, that's been sitting on the Republicans' desk, uh, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act bill, you know, it should have his name on it. And we should pass that because his stance on that Selma bridge on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965 encapsulated everything about about John Lewis. And so we should not only honor the people who he struggled for, but we should honor him by having that bill that's in his name passed. Professor Mays, you mentioned John Lewis's involvement in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We probably should explain for some listeners who may not be familiar with that particular committee, what was its role in the civil rights movement? So SNCC uh, was the, wasn't the first student organization that was part of the movement. Uh, NAACP always had a youth division and they were active. But this group, which was brand new in 1960, formed after the sit-ins that took place all over the South. So these college students, these black college students, mainly from HBCUs, uh, decided to, you know, put their lives on the line, put their academic, young academic careers on the line by protesting Jim Crow segregation in places like uh, Nashville and Memphis and Atlanta and um, Greensboro, North Carolina. That's where it started in Green, uh, North Carolina A&T, which is a uh, historically black college and university uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then it spread all over the South. So John Lewis is part of the, the, one of those early student cohorts in, in the city of Nashville. They protest from February through April, May of 1960. And then they decided to get together as a regional group of black students in May or June of 1960. And they formed what was called the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. And this is the youth movement in the civil rights movement itself, which was dominated in 1960, 1961 by SCLC, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was Martin Luther King's organization. It was an organization made, mainly made up of preachers, black preachers. But SNCC was all young people and they galvanized the movement. And in many ways, they I, I, I argued that it, without their uh, efforts, without their contributions, that I don't think the civil rights movement would have been as successful. But John Lewis is a very young man. He's actually uh, in his early 20s, as many of the, the SNCC activists were. Uh, in the early 60s. So that, that was the organization. And they stayed around. They were really uh, relevant and, and viable for a solid 10 years from 1960 to about 1970. Before his death, Congressman Lewis expressed optimism over seeing the extraordinarily large protests across the globe in the wake of George Floyd's killing. What are the similarities of today's Black Lives Matter protests to the civil rights movement and what are some of the major differences? It's a good question. I think a lot of the similarities is that, you know, black protest movements from era to era 
stand on one another. So Black Lives Matter can't exist without the organizational uh, knowledge that was provided by other youth movements. And again, Black Lives Matter being uh, a young movement as well. Uh, Black Lives Matter, they are an organization or a movement that pays attention to the contributions of, not, of people of not, not only like John Lewis, but people like Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. A lot of black women were strategically important in terms of guiding the 1960s movement. Uh, often overlooked, but important. Black Lives Matter brings that to the fore in a way that they are intentionally intersectional in their organizational protests, meaning that black women are leading the movement a lot more now than what they did back in the 1960s. Again, we have, I mean, there are many black women, but they often were overshadowed by the black men. Um, so whether it was, I don't know, Daisy Bates or Parks or Ella Baker or Fannie Lou, you had these towering black men that sort of kept them marginalized. Today, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, first of all, they have, they de-emphasize uh, leadership in the way that the 1960s movement did. So that's not, there may not be one or two uh, head figures that everybody rally around. So the Black Lives Matter leadership's uh, a lot more diffuse. Although we know uh, the women who started it, like Patrice and Alicia Garza and all those folks, uh, we, know, we know them, but we don't know them in the same way. But the organizers, the key critical on the ground folks, a lot of them are black women, a lot of them are uh, black queer. And I think that the difference is, is that we don't want to choose one aspect of our identity to rally around. Uh, we want to understand ourselves to be black for what it means to be black and female, black uh, and gay, black and lesbian, black and trans. Uh, we're going to emphasize a certain kind of fem black feminist thrust that sits at the center of the movement. Those are the, the key differences. And again, we don't want this sort of figurehead as the leader uh, that people can identify as the person who's calling all the sh shots, as it were. And a lot of people say that's a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, some people say, no, no, we need really someone who can sort of, at least if they're not setting the agenda on their own, at least they, they are the ones who are understood to be leading this movement. Others saying that, you know, this is the 21st century. Well, that, that's an old archaic way of organizing on the ground. So uh, very similar in a lot of ways, Jim, very different in, in, in so many different ways as well. Of course, you know, Black Lives Matter was a hashtag movement. That's how it started, uh, as opposed to uh, folks just walking around and handing out flyers and leaflets and and advertising in black newspapers and, and you know, maybe talking about uh, activities that they will engage in uh, during Sunday morning church service and, and black churches. Uh, so that's, that's a major difference. In the wake of George Floyd, there is a sense of urgency to better understand our nation's history and the legacy of racism. What would you recommend to someone who wants to learn more about racism in America? That racism is endemic, it's enduring, it's not fleeting, it's not transitory, it's not occasional. 
but perhaps uh, given the coronavirus pandemic, maybe there's a way to understand racism in a, in a different way. Uh, racism could be its own pandemic. So if we have pandemics, you know, every 100 some odd years, uh, maybe we have something called racism that is as old as a 100 year old pandemic, or maybe is even deeper than pandemics because it, it was started, you know, when the country was founded, obviously. So it's even worse than a pandemic. I've heard racism uh, being called a public health issue because of the kind of havoc that it wreaks uh, in the lives of black and brown people. Uh, so there's so many unintended and intended consequences of white oppression. And we have a, have a tendency to see them in kind of the disparate realities and how people live, whether it's housing, uh, education, employment, but there are ways in which racism is affecting people uh, that we don't see on people's uh, uh, everyday well-being and, and that kind of thing. So I, I would say that what people don't understand it, that and they need to understand about racism that is much deeper than uh, what we think. And a lot of times people equate racism with prejudice, just your everyday run-in-the-mill prejudice, white people using N-words against uh, black people and that kind of thing. But no, we're talking about structural inequality on the one hand, and we're talking about psychological trauma on the other. And if we don't understand racism and that kind of, of form, uh, then we, we are missing uh, what racism is all about. How has George Floyd's death impacted your classroom and the types of discussions you have with students on race and the history of racism? So I think that in many ways, the students are coming into the class either with prior knowledge of the way race and injustice works, or they, if they're not reading, they're at least curious. But I think that what's different now is, and I still tell my students this too, so I'm not old enough to actually have been a part of the civil rights movement of the 60s. So when I teach the movement of the 60s, I teach it out of books because of people who may have lived it, people who may have written about their, their role in it, uh, secondary sources from professors like myself. I said, it's a whole nother thing, Jim, to actually live through a movement like today. And I think what students are experiencing is that they're coming into the classroom actually saying that I participated in the protest last summer, or I joined this organization, or I, was, I just was, wanted to be active because I wanted to be a responsible citizen of the United States and I, I joined the organization to make a difference. I think that's the big difference for me as an older person to actually live through it myself, live through this phase of the movement and then actually have students come into the classroom already educated in, in, in many different ways about what racism and inequality is all about. It's, it's, like I said, it's a sea change between the first few years that I've taught and, and now for sure. You have worked on addressing Minnesota's educational achievement disparities between white students and students of color. Before the pandemic, tell us about your work and how educators in the state were tackling this issue. You know, that's a good question. I, I think that in some ways, everyone has been touched by social justice. So 2020, the tragic murder of George Floyd upped the ante, as it were. So if folks were 
you know, unaware or indifferent, then maybe they became conscious about the issues after May 2020. But there are some people who were conversing with the issues before the murder of George Floyd, right? Because of some of the things that maybe they've been tuned into. And I think that generally people have an idea that the country is on the wrong track and that we need to make a change at the level of race. But I don't think, Jim, it has penetrated to the degree to which it should have in K-12. K-12 is a microcosm of the larger society. So anything that you see uh, in society that's problematic along racial lines, you can find them in schools. So the question becomes, how do schools make the difference for their students? Do they take their cues from the larger society or should they you know, be at the forefront of this movement? And it's hard to tell with K-12 school districts how they, how they wanna move. Urban, and, you, you, there's a tendency to think that urban school districts are a little bit more enlightened and they are doing it a little bit better than suburban metro area districts. But I don't know if that's the case. I, I, I go back and forth with that. I work with a lot of school districts and I see a lot of great things in a lot of schools. But I see a lot of um, either indifference or folks don't know how to start. They don't know how to make change. They struggle around nomenclature and vocabulary. Uh, they may be struggling because the schools may exist in a certain community and that community is resistant to racial change. So I see a lot of different dynamics. It's not a lot of white families don't want to change. And so if the schools start doing something along racial lines that's wholesome and healthy, some white families get freaked out. You got a lot of microaggressions in schools, a lot of white children engaging in a lot of white racial microaggressions against students of color. Schools are very complex institutions. And you see some movement, but you also see schools not moving at all. And that's not you know, anything peculiar to schools. That's how we behave in the larger society. You know, there, there are stops and starts, and there are people who are indifferent and not paying attention. And then you got people on the other side of the fence that are extremely hostile to any kind of change. Schools in many ways look no different. But I would love to see schools lead, lead the way on this. I really, I really would. What do you think are some immediate steps that could be taken in the state to close the gaps between white and black Minnesotans? And what sorts of long-term investments should we be considering? Well, to speak about education, I think one of the things that we have to uh, be aware of is that you know education is the key to upward mobility, if that's how you define racial advancement. Not everyone does. You know, I talk to a lot of people to say that you know the way that I exist as a whole person in the world, you know, it could mean more, more educational opportunities, greater, better educational opportunities, but it may, it may not mean that. If it's, that means that I get degrees and I take those degrees and get a middle-class job. Other, other people say that I just want my humanity to be recognized. I mean, let's start there. And uh, whether I uh, achieve any kind of educational attainment or not, I, I just want to be recognized as a citizen of the country and I want, to, want my humanity to be recognized. Other people say that, uh, indeed, the structural uh, aspects of racism, ha- that, that has to end. We have to break those barriers down. So whether it's access to schools or, or jobs, I think that for me, in every single sector of the American society, you see deficits as it relates to people of color being able to access them. 
the disparities in employment, education, healthcare, incarceration rates, home ownership, uh, health disparities. I, I think the gaps are too big and they are ubiquitous in all aspects of American society. And so I think we need to close those gaps on our way to eliminating them. For me personally, that's how uh, you eliminate the problems around race that you have. But increasingly, Jim, you know, I'm wondering if the gaps are what helps a lot of white people uh, remain white, if that makes any sense. Meaning that if you close the gaps, even if there is some potential closing of the gap, even if you perceive the gaps are closing, does it represent a zero sum game as it were? White people always feel that if people of color are, are gaining something, then they may be losing something. And the reason why I got I have that foremost on my mind, because look at the um, coronavirus vaccination process. Now, we've been hearing for the last 12 months that communities of color suffer the greatest when it comes to contracting the disease and they're dying from the disease. So then they said, well, the folks who need to get the vaccination first should be communities of color. But we've already seen that they are the last to get it because, as I said on a radio, another radio program a couple of weeks ago, power and privilege always finds a way to get to the front of the line. And I don't know how it does it, but it does. Even when we acknowledge the fact that we need to pay attention to a, a one particular disparity, and in this case, health disparity, to be even more specific, Corona vac vaccinations because black and brown folks contracted at a greater rate. Well, you think that they would be at the forefront of any kind of vaccination process that would include them first, but they're, they're not, that's just not. So if I have the power, the money, the connections, I have the power at the end of the day to bypass the line, to jump in front of the line, to make sure that I and my family and my community get it first. And I'm wondering if that's something endemic uh, into the system of racial injustice. It's just that it's just born into the system. Uh, it's just there. And for it to be rooted out means that, you know, white people will have to make a determination, you know, what does that mean for them? Can we share power in a way that will allow others to not have to suffer so greatly because of their race? Or do we just insist on maintaining it? Or do we pay lip service to these issues and say that we will make changes when it comes to the disparities, but still continue the same old behavior. And from what I can see, at least with, with the coronavirus and the vac vaccination, that's exactly what's happening. Keith Mays is an associate professor of African-American and African studies at the University of Minnesota. Professor Mays, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure.